Russell is a driver in Los Angeles who's reeling from a series of bad decisions. While his life seems to be caught in a downward spiral, a business proposition from an alluring but enigmatic passenger named Charlotte proves to be too good to turn down. A simple ride turns deadly, catapulting Russell into an even darker place. But Charlotte may be the key to a second chance he thought he'd never have, if he can make it through the night. Today my guests are Bradford Barra and Megan Leon, the co-directors and writer of the film Night Drive. I also have A.J. Bowen, uh, you might know him from Your Next and The Signal, and Sophie Dalla, who you might know from Unbroken or Dead Night. Uh, this was actually the second time that I interviewed this group of four people. Uh, the first time, the recording didn't work, and they were actually willing to come back and re-record the episode a couple hours later. In the same day, they all stayed late on Press Junket. They've been doing that day just to add on uh, our second interview, and I can't thank them enough. I was really appreciative of it. The first, conversa- uh, first conversation we had was great. had a really good time with them, and I was so glad we got to try to recapture it. Uh, there is one part that's referenced uh, one in the conversation uh, from the first one that we had where I think we were talking about AJ being the equivalent of Robert Rodriguez's dog in El Mariachi, that uh, whenever Bradford or Megan would get lost, they could always count on cutting to AJ uh, for comic relief or for a transition, and the same way that Robert Rodriguez would cut to the dog. Uh, So again, thank you uh, to all four of them for doing this twice. I really appreciate it. Uh, Thanks to Bookman's for sponsoring the show, and thanks to Fort Worth for letting me use the song at the end. Hope you enjoy the show. Thanks. Thank you so much for doing this again. Um, I the first thought that I have was like this was like losing my virginity, where there's just um, I'm, I was really excited for the opportunity, but then it was immediately followed by embarrassment, a fair amount of shame, and it was just uh, thank you for giving me another crack at this. I appreciate it. No worries, man. So, is everybody else here? Uh, it's you and Brad right now. I'm not sure if we have anybody else coming. Or Megan and Sophie should be here as far as last I heard. I'm all up in here. Well, thank you both again for doing this today again. Um, and so I, I guess it's not that uncommon because you go through this multiple times in a day. I'm sure you're hearing a lot of the same questions over and over again. So we can just pretend like that first one never happened, I guess, um, and just have a conversation again and, and ignore the obvious truth that no one will, there's no record of, unfortunately. So Thank you for doing this again, Sophie. I really appreciate it. And thank you, Megan. Yeah. Um, so the first thing that I wanted to ask, uh, being struck by this film, the idea that you were all worked together before. You had this group of people you kind of have, um, reminds me of kind of what Altman used to do, where you'd have this group of people you brought together time and time again. And it felt like you guys all you know worked together on this other project and came back together to do this second project together. Um, could you talk a little bit, um, Megan and Brad, possibly about um, what it was in this story that made you want to get this particular group back together again? Well, we wrote the script specifically for AJ and Sophie. Um, the four of us had worked together on Dead Night, which Brad directed and I edited. And obviously, AJ and Sophie were in it, although uh, I had been on set for the production as well. And um, Brad had um suggested that he and I co-direct something together and we kind of looked at the, the things that we had which we had a car we had AJ we had Sophie and we kind of crafted the story around that 
and you know other people on the crew were people we had worked with before like our ac asia and sean rusigliano our other camera guy uh were people that we had ex great experiences with and you know when you're doing something scrappy you want everybody to kind of be on the same page and thankfully sophie and aj were both really game to get crammed in a car together with a zoom recorder in the cup holder and uh and you know drive around at night together yeah i, I megan's been an amazing collaborator on all of our stuff we, we work on documentaries and uh she's been an amazing part of that uh side of the business so made sense and like she said she was there on set um for dead night and it just our, our collaborative nature very much kind of uh made the experience that much better so with me um taking on camera and her writing an amazing script and uh and editing, it just seemed like we were very whole. Um, and then Sophie was wonderful. We, we we found her for Dead Night and AJ. Uh, AJ, I think I met you at, a, at the film at, at a film festival run. Was it? I, I produced a movie with Don Coscarelli called John Dies at the End, and I think Don introduced us. Was that how we met? And then we always My had right. conversations, and I, it just kind of spilled into a uh, very obvious kind of uh, um, shorthand we had right away. Yeah. Um, with, with us, um, Brad, I you told me that we met at South by, um, yes. for John dies. I don't remember that at all. I was sitting uh, next to you. I'm just not, which is funny. Cause that. which yeah. is funny. Cause I, I was already sober by that point. Um, but yeah. Um, but I remember, um, us getting lunch, uh, you and me and Don, um, and, and like really getting to know each other uh, to get ready to do dead night and um, finding out, <coughs> uh, pardon me, that, that there's like similar interests. And, and when you're doing stuff, when you're making movies that aren't, that aren't corporate run. And, and I don't say that as an insult. I just say it as a lack of experience on my end. I have no, I have no experience with that sort of thing. Um, you, the speaking the same language and having similar interests and, and, an approach to how you execute art on this sort of micro level is fundamentally important because you're never going to have enough time. You don't have enough money. There aren't enough, there aren't enough sound stages, you know? Um, so, you know, I, I've mentioned before, like Brad and I have gone on long texting conversations before about, you know, the, the artistic um, integrity of Halloween four, you know, and, and why we think it's wonderful. And, right. and without, without any irony, like legitimately are talking about how someday we're going to make a movie well, that starts with the way that Halloween four starts the way it looks. Daniel Harris is one of the most memorable characters from the whole series. So yeah, I yeah. agree with you completely. Not only that, but I actually went, and this was a surprise to Megan and Megan, correct me if I'm wrong, but when we were kind of dabbling, Megan had cracked the script. I got excited and I went and shot an open that was basically Halloween four. It was basically That's just true. static yeah. shots of like, you know what I mean? If you guys remember that, open, yeah. um, I cribbed the whole thing. And then we set it to, uh, I God, I can't, was it Depeche mode? I, we put some music under it and I was like, Hey guys, this is exciting. We have this little thing with credits and uh, it was great. We didn't end up using it, but it's funny because I think AJ noticed and Megan, I was like, hey, you know, we talked about it and Megan, I was like, Oh, that's just the opening of Halloween four. But for Nitra, <laughs> like, right, that, that, that's the opening with all the static shots of yeah, like fields and all that. Okay, yeah, I got a static shot of like a power lines on Mulholland and a static shot of like some like orange kind of sunsetty bushes playing off of Laurel Canyon. And we did some signs, some street signs, and it played kind of 
it was kind of a, a AJ. Do you remember this? And we show it. I mean, I, I, I do. This is the second that I saw it. Crazy. I was like, this is this is the opening of Halloween Four. <laughs> yes. yeah. Wait, so Halloween Four is a great movie. Let's 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 give uh, quite little is due there. Well, and even off a complete separate tangent, have nothing to do with your film. But the great novelization, as far as those kinds of novelizations go, of Halloween Four that I love, and I've yet to meet somebody else who's read it. But if you happen to want to spend way too much money on something that was like a $2 paperback, you know, 30 years ago. I, it's worth a read. It's a good afternoon. Sold. That's it. I'll read that. I'll read that. If you read Jaws, the revenge novelization, like you have that, is that, that's a thing. Yeah. I'm not going to go get it. Cause no, I, 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 I believe you completely. Yeah. Is it easy to find? Is it worth reading? I guess you'd be there. Okay. Amazon, there's a, there's a voodoo priest. Done. I lit, I was given, it's my birthday this weekend, so I, I know that there'll be at least one Amazon gift card in the mix somewhere, and that, that will be, that'll be the purchase for sure at this point. What is the deal with Jaws? Megan and I, we hear a lot about this Jaws. I remember the movie. I, I totally do, but it's odd how it kind of uh, permeates our lives. Jaws of Revenge. Love it or hate it. Flawless film. It's a flawless film. I don't know. It's, it's I wish that the fact that the shark was in like the Bahamas, right? I mean, it was straight up like they didn't even try. They were just like at that time it was personal. I mean, come on. It was personal with the with uh yeah, Laurie and Gary, and it was in Michael Caine, right? I think was in it. I don't want to steer this thing that way, but so I'm I'm just sitting here thinking about like how happy Stacy must be that we're discussing Jaws the Revenge. Right now, <laughs> it, was, it was on our talking points from from MPI and Dark. Side. Well, I, I didn't get around to it yeah. the fir- first time, so I, I I'm appreciating <laughs> that you know the, this is the real reason why that we needed a do over so that we could get into the you know the fours of these large franchises. I guess. But, Thank God you didn't record it. This is going exactly <laughs> the way we wanted. <laughs> and so um, the the thing that really you have going for this film, uh, I mean, the cinematography it looks great. I think you're definitely punching above your weight class. The writing is really solid here. This is a really well-constructed story, um, but none of that would work without the chemistry of AJ and Sophie. This film really does hang on those performances. And there's almost a black box theater aspect to it where you're really just watching actors do their work. And that's the biggest special effect that you have here. Um, your dynamic is different um, than it was in your previous work together, but there's a playfulness in both of them that I really appreciate. And you, the way you interact brings out this comedy that I wasn't expecting in the film. And I was wondering if you two could just talk about your on-screen chemistry working together. Yeah, it's it's funny that you mentioned that because like, I think that um, that's something that necessarily Brad didn't anticipate at first either. Um, I can't remember if we talked about it, but... Um, but it was a few days into the shoot that, that Brad, you know, when we're all, when we're making this movie, there's no such thing as like a traditional role on this size or this, especially when you know each other and you work with each other and you're all professionals, there's going to be more like, I don't think that like a traditional actor is going to start having conversations about visual solutions to, you know, well, what angle are we coming from? What size lens? And, that that to me is like fundamentally important for how I'm going to perform um, having those, those conversations. But I remember, I think it was like three days in four days in something like that. Um, Brad bringing up, uh, is this, I didn't know this was a comedy. Is this, is this fun? Is this supposed to be, is this too funny? Because Brad is thinking about, you know, what's it going to look like. And so um, 
not to be reductive, but you know, a lot there's, there's, you can see callback to sort of like nineties, neo-noir kind of thriller kind of vibe with, with the, with the way that Brad's lighting it and, and shooting it, especially the fact that we're inside the car for a lot of it, or we're right outside of one side of a desolate road is like got a very red rocks kind of like vibe to some of that stuff. Um, and then you've got people inside that are, that are talking and, and grim shit happens in this movie, but it happens sandwiched in between sort of, um, what could come across as, as, as comical dialogue, uh, between the two of us. And, um, for me, like the second that I read it, I just, it's important to be able to understand the intent of the writer and the voice of the, of the script. Every script has its own narrative voice. And in this one, the narrative voice is often is more times not the dialogue between the the two characters. And um, I just felt like the natural delivery of that stuff lent lent itself to humor. Um, If you just say the line straight, it's going to be funny because it's funny. And, um, and Sophie and I knowing each other the way that we do, um, but like, like we've said before, some of the stuff is, is AJ responding to Sophie, you know, um, I'll be at a really darker version of Sophie. Um, but this sort of like aloof and then, you know, like a generational divide, um, between the two of us which is funny because we, you know, what we discovered when we were working on dead night is so many similarities that we have in terms of interests and personality types. Um, so it was interesting to find those for dead night and then try to push them away from each other and go to as far of extreme of like, you know, old man, get off my lawn kind of vibe <laughs> mm-hmm. younger fun person. That's like, everything's cool. What's your problem? There, there was a big, not to be the worst director ever, not that I didn't know what movie we were making, but the movie is definitely lives or breathes on tunnel ships, which is, 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 right. is a hard thing to pull off. Um, and there was a moment and I knew Megan's script was brilliant. I knew it was funny, but to your point, Chris, that it doesn't come to life until you see AJ and Sophie doing it and the way they do it off each other. It became something. So there was that aha realization. Yeah. I would say day four. I think you're right. Um, we were doing rear projection stuff in a small warehouse in Burbank. And uh, there was a realization where I was like, holy shit, every lens choice I've made, the, the, the actual palette, the actual lighting, our cool kind of blue, everything we're doing here, our, we, we were pushing the camera a little bit to get a little bit of a, a feeling in it and grain. And uh, I, I did look at them at one point and go like, oh my God, had I known how you two were going to play off each other, you know, it could have actually given us a different visual aesthetic. Um, and I think Megan was like, no, no, this is great. This is like, we should have visually do it that way because it's not something you see. So it, it's, it's enhancing um, the support of these tonal shifts that we're going to play. I, I feel like, and you don't see many comedies because I think we can all agree they're genre elements, but ultimately it's a, it's, it's a dramatic comedy. Um, and I think that the, the, the aesthetic actually worked in our favor, but uh, as AJ said, there was definitely a moment where I was like, Oh my God, are we, are we actually sh- shooting and making the right decisions here? Um, in terms of specific genre. Um, but I believe, and, and Megan, Andrew, you guys, Sophie, you tell me, but I believe it, it ended up being the best possible decision. Um, but I can't say it was specific for the right reasons in jumping off into it. Yeah, no, it was less, it was less like saying like, like Brad didn't know what was going on. I was just not <laughs> my friend. And, um, 
and more more like speaks more guess to my character that I think it's hilarious to run a guy over. <laughs> and, and, Megan, do you remember that conversation when we, when we, that we I had that? Yeah, for sure. But, but I also I think you know Sophie played her character so cool um, and and so blasé that it gave AJ something to really react to and overreact to sometimes, not as a comment on his performance, but like, you know, asking her, why are you so calm about these things? You know, and I think that there was a lot of comedy that came out of that. And just for me personally, in life, I tend to, you know, go to humor when things are uncomfortable anyway, you know, and and I I think it helps alleviate tension and, uh, you know, kind of numbs you from emotions that are hard to struggle with sometimes, you know, and, um, and, you know, seeing the two of them actually saying the lines and, and, and having their shtick together, you know, really brought it into a different light. But I think it also kind of shows a fundamental uh, element of Brad and mine's working relationship, which is that we both come from different tastes and different backgrounds and it's like chocolate and peanut butter or, well, I don't know, maybe two things that you wouldn't think taste good together that end up tasting good together, you know? Um, so we're able to bring, you know, sort of a darker sort of genre element with Brad and kind of the wackier, zanier stuff through me and, and you know, bring it all together. So Sophie, when you're doing this, this uh, film and you start, do you recognize the comedy immediately in the way that you're playing off of AJ? Or is that something that took you by surprise? Um, so not when I read the script, did I realize how, how funny it could be? I think it came when we started reading lines together and how absurd how absurd this all was like I my objective really was to just try and get Russell to to um to realize it's not a big deal we have to keep going we have to get from a to b like it's fine you know it's all gonna be good you know with that i know why like we all know why i'm doing it that way um and i think just like me being here and him being here that's just that's funny like it's like just like the timing and the, the space between us is just like the, the 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 also just like the chemistry that we have you know it feel, truly feels like a game of tennis because he throws something at me and then I'm like, what? And it, 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 we're constantly back and forth with like, what we're just on different pages, you know? And so as we started doing it, like it was funny, like it just was funny. And then I remember the day, like, yeah, maybe day four, um, being like, oh, of course this is funny. How could it not, how could, how could this not have been funny? Like I didn't read it as a comedy, but I was like, oh, like, there's definitely stuff between these two characters, which is, I also wanted him to like me, you know, I wanted Russell to like me. And so in that, you know, you try and do things like someone called it uh, gaslighting before. And I was like, yeah, it's kind of like gaslighting. Like I was really just trying to like get him to be on my side and, and uh, which is confusing because I'm clearly not someone who's trustworthy. 
And can you talk a little bit about the idea of playing with the tonal shifts and the the leap of faith that you take in the audience by making a big left turn in the third act that it presents itself, I think at the last possible moment that you could have that shift in tone that Sophie's character pushes it so far and what's inside the box that we don't know. And once that reveal happens, there's been, you've gone down this downward spiral so long that if you pushed it any longer, I don't think the film would hold up, that it's just that last moment that you could possibly do it. And you're asking the audience to buy into this thing, which I personally love. Um, you talk about that leap of faith you have to have in an audience that'll go along with you on that ride. Yeah, absolutely. It's scary. And I remember just like doing some of the scenes with like the gore and like everyone was just like, disgusted by the things that I was doing and at one point like Brad had the idea like I'm literally holding like like there's blood I'm cutting someone's like there's just stuff going on I don't know if I'm supposed to say that but um uh and Brad's like eat a chip like on the morning like there's a bit of me eating a ch- I don't I don't think I don't know if the cut is in the movie but I there's a take of me eating the chip just to see how far we can push it like how what you know like no it's in the movie it's it, 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 in the movie it's been a while since i've seen it but yeah, it yeah. it's, it's you know. there and it, it definitely was it was i remember watching it and i remember looking at megan going like this is way too far like you know what i mean it's just way too weird but then we realized if we're going for it let's go for it and it's interesting that you mentioned it and i'll let megan talk the script structure but we did talk about that like how far can you go and 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 you know it's going to be divisive. That's just the way it is. But without that and in, in the um, the gusto to go for it, then we lose our identity because it can become a rideshare movie. You know, do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's kind yeah. of like we knew we were skirting it. We knew, you know, what that limit was. And thank God, unless you're a good actor, uh, you, you, no, you're right. I mean, that is the, that, that's the moment where it's like, OK, people aren't going to deal with this anymore. Um, and also when you do that, like how it affects what came before. You know what I mean? So it's like, oh, yeah. oh, I'm watching the rest of the movie, but now I'm starting to think, and hopefully maybe it makes repeat viewing something that's uh, rewarding for audiences. Um, and I'll well, throw it to make it on structure. Making so. a conscious choice to be pissed off about not being A to B than being panicked about it and being like, what the fuck is happening? Was like very, very a clear choice that I made, you know? I, I was always like pissed, like, can we just can go? Rather than being like, oh, we need, like, you know, like it, there was this small things, I think on second watch, you'll, you'll, yeah. Today's episode of the Following Films podcast is brought to you by Bookman's. So last week when I went into Bookman's, I didn't really have anything in mind. There was no specific agenda of anything I wanted to see. I just knew that I, wanted to check out something familiar, something that I you know, maybe hadn't seen in a little while. And so behind the counter, they actually had a copy of the Rocky Horror Picture Show. I think it was the 35th anniversary edition. It's probably 45 years old at this point. It's got to be close to that, um, if not 50, but however old it is. And so I realized I hadn't seen this film since I was in eighth grade without a theater. I've seen it several times um, since then, with an audience, but I remember seeing it uh, when it first came out on home video, when it first came out on VHS, but I don't think I had seen that, seen it since then. So I thought, well, hell, this would be a great opportunity to revisit the film. And one of the first things that got me about this, it was all the special features that were on this specific edition of it, where you could watch the film with this original black and white opening. 
And so the entire opening of the film, if you're familiar with it, is black and white now until they do the time warp. That's when it has the uh, Dorothy going into Oz kind of thing. And that's where the color comes into the film. And it really hammered home this idea, something that I knew was there right away, but it just, I guess in all the times I've seen the film, it never really sunk in how much this is a play on the 1950s um, Steve Rogers films and that, that kind of thing. And it was just this really fun experience to revisit this film in this way, something that I hadn't seen this way. Uh, I've only, I got used to seeing it with an audience and having all those gag lines and, you know, watching it actually stand up on its own and having this really interesting, bizarre, weird, fun, sex positive for a film made in the 1970s movie that you wouldn't expect filled with great performances and really good songs. So I had a absolute blast watching it. And that's all because I went down to Bookman's. And um, n- another thing that they never have me mention in the ad copy, but I think it is something that I do want to point out is that generally speaking, I don't go into public a lot. And Bookman's is one of the few stores that I go into and I feel really comfortable um, taking my kids with right now, where there's always somebody at the front door counting people as they come in to make sure it's not too uh, packed, keeping things socially distanced. Um, when you check out, everything's marked for you to stand and they have um, glass dividers for the employees there. So you can tell that safety is an absolute priority for them. And it just is nice to feel safe when you go into a store. Um, not, not, not everywhere is like that. So it, it is just a comforting thing. And not only does Bookman have, Bookman's have your cool covered, they also have your safety covered in this regard. So um, make sure you go check them out, support Bookman's because there's going to be something interesting that you'll find there. And now back to the show. The tonal shift thing, um, it's interesting to me because it, it's its maybe a lack of imagination on my part that I don't, I didn't ever really see like a, a tonal shift. I guess it, it, if you're making a choice at the, at the beginning of the process of, of, of crafting a story that of what sandbox you're playing in is, um, if I guess if Megan had gone off and said, I'm writing a horror movie, then there would have been, I guess, this sort of universe and a set of parameters. But, um, but with this movie, and I think we talked about this before, it's like, I feel like our, the ambition should be, if you're trying to tell a story is that this movie only happens with this, these people, it can't be reimagined. It's something different. um, If you do, and it's at this one window of time and in a best, in a best case scenario, it becomes by default kind of its own genre. If you don't betray the, the voice of the story, then that's why we run into issues describing it later on because we're like, it, I, I don't feel that it ever becomes, it's not like we're talking about like from dusk till dawn that starts off this crime, this dusty crime movie and turns into a vampire movie. We're talking about things that the, um, the aesthetics don't suddenly shift in the movie. Right. The, um, the style of performance doesn't shift. Um, the things that happen to them change. And then there you reach a, a point of a, almost, if you would look at it on paper, as like an absurdity moment. But what's cool about it is that when the audience finds out is when this character finds out and we're literally watching them experience it. So it just sort of takes the air out of this absurd 
what could be a, you know, a, a plot shift that's, that's crazy. It is crazy, but it's also still grounded in realism because you, it, it, we were coming at it from a place of like, okay, someone tells you this, like, how do you respond? Like, how do you respond? You don't want to respond like a movie. You want to respond like a person when it comes to that sort of a thing. Um, and a lot of the filmmakers that we all love, we never talk, like you're mentioning Altman. Altman has some things. We don't talk about, I mean, yeah, like McCabe and Miss Miller will talk about how it's, you know, Altman's Western. But that's just because of the time and era that it was. It's still an Altman movie. Yeah. And so this is a kind of a movie that that weaves in and out of, of being humorous and being dark um, and being a road picture. And those all have their own set of rules. But at the end of the day, it's, it's like our concept album. It's like our band doing this concept album. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. Oh, I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to thank you for, thank you for pointing that out because I actually, you're right. It's not a tonal shift in the film. And I think that's the wrong way to frame it because the, the tone is consistent. The audience just doesn't know what the tone is until the third act. We don't, we're watching well, a different can, film. I guess so you're saying you find out that you can, you, you realize that like, and this has happened, this happened to us at Fantastic Fest. When things started getting dark, you would feel the audience, which is a pretty craven audience down there, still <laughs> yeah. not being sure if it was cool to laugh at this. It seemed funny, but they're like, I don't know. Is this, can we laugh at this? And then, by the time you get towards the end of the movie, and it's why I think repeat viewing um, is rewarded on this one because you get to go back and experience the, the movie through a completely different lens. And then there's stuff that's really funny, and then there's stuff that's really not very funny at all. Yeah, and it's it's interesting because I've had the I do EBKs and I do documentaries, so I've had the the, the luxury of speaking to some amazing filmmakers over the years. And uh, something that I learned is most filmmakers will say tonal shifts. We love them, but audiences and studios don't. So this type of movie, should it have made, if it was a studio picture, we wouldn't have pulled that off. It would have, it just wouldn't have worked because it's not within that 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 boundary. So you'll hear most these amazing filmmakers. We love tonal shifts, but you know audiences don't buy into them. They do with with the, with Altman movies. You can you can look at shortcuts. There's a lot of that stuff with Coen Brothers. Um, yeah. But you're, you're you're not afforded to make. So if we're going to go for it. Um, we figured we're making the decisions here, so let's go for it. And if it's divisive, great, but it's going to be a more interesting viewing experience. And I, I, Megan, I do want to throw this back to you because you're the writer. In terms of the structure, um, what before we actually found that kind of point of turn, did you ever think about writing it earlier? Was that, did we kind of find that and that's where it sat? I, I remember having the discussions, but I don't remember, I don't know what your process was oh. in, in placing it at that point in the movie. We just kind of talked it out and that just felt like a natural, it sort of felt like, well, this is as far as they can go without revealing it. Uh, and like you said, Christopher, that it would, people would be angry or they, you know, you'd get kind of like enough already. Tell us what's in the, what's in the case, you know? And so it just felt like a organic place to have the reveal. And it, it does give our movie, I think its own identity in that it could have been a rideshare movie. You know what I mean? And at this point, I don't think, as rideshare movies become their own subgenre, um, I don't think we want to be defined by that. And some people, are, oh, it's another rideshare thriller, but it really can't. I think I can say confidently that it can't really be compared to other rideshare thrillers that we've seen recently. No, absolutely not. But there's a the limited storytelling aspect of it that can be pushed out, which is one of the things I love in independent film. That kind of that black box theater thing when I first you know discovered 
art that was different that was, you know, when it was actually acting based and it wasn't just all big special effects. You know, when I first saw live theater and it was just actors doing their work and you all those other things, they become superfluous because it's just getting in the way of watching performance, really. And a lot of times the decisions that are being made, they're not supporting the performance. They're taking away from it. And I feel like everything here is supporting the performances, even when you didn't realize you were making a comedy for those first four days, because it allows the comedy to land so much more because you're not pointing it out. And that lets the, lets the audience just really revel in that. I think. It, it, it's, it's a- absolutely the case. I think you're, you're, you're dead on with that. And uh, the performances drove what we were doing. A lot of decisions changed based on the chemistry of these two, based on both sides of coverage, based on where to move the camera to show them. And, and we try to work a lot, you know, it's, it's hard to move a camera around and get everything in one, but there are a lot of moments where the camera is sitting, case in point where they exit the bar. And there's a mm-hmm. moment where AJ had had a couple of drinks. So if he wants to drive, AJ, the person doesn't want Sophie, the person to drive in reality. Um, and there are just those moments that we were able to actually nail that whole thing in, in one shot. Um, which would virtually be impossible and, and wouldn't have worked without their chemistry and their timing, you know, cause you can't, we couldn't sit there all night and, and, and do shots like that. So it's uh, the, exactly what you're saying. We were supporting the, the timing, the chemistry and the performance. Um, once we kind of realized where the two of them were sitting and how well mm-hmm. it was working, it decisions became let's service that because that's what's, what, what, what's driving this, you know what I mean? Without, that type of acting without that shorthand and that that chemistry as weird as it can be um it, it just wouldn't work well and that specific moment and i'm glad you brought that up because it's beautifully shot and just the way the christmas lights are in the background and like illuminating that room it's just absolutely gorgeous to look at that the way that it reflects the light in there and it has this warmth to it that doesn't necessarily match what's going on on screen and it just it's just uncomfortable balance that creates tension that, you know, this, if you took the shot and just framed it on its own without the con- content of our, the con- you had no insight to what was going on. You would think this was just a romantic comedy. You would feel like this was something that just looks like this is the meat cute. This is that moment, but it's absolutely not that moment. And, and when you're constantly kind of fucking with the audience in that way, yeah. I, I love it. I mean, I guess it's just, I watch too many movies and I, I want, I need like, to be kind of screwed with a little bit <laughs> to some degree um, to defy expectations. And I really love that about this film. Bert, we, we fell in love with that bar. I mean, getting that bar, I think it was no bar in, in, in North Hollywood, right, Megan? Yeah. Getting that little bar meant everything and just being like, okay, we're going to grab everything out of, out of my closet, you know, out of my garage. And we have a bunch of string lights. And a, a, as a cameraman, that's, it's just, I mean, that was just gorgeous. And we, we fell in love with what we could do in there. Um, and, uh, yeah, it, it was just, again, watching that thing, I got lost actually at one point during that scene and watching them act and we were um, moving the camera back and forth and, and it didn't stop because I was just literally watching the shot and watching the actors. And when we when we assembled the movie, it was incredibly distracting to watch this 10 minute dialogue scene with the camera just constantly moving. It reminded me of a movie and it, it's a good movie, um, but there's a Kevin Bacon and a Christian Slater movie called Murder in the First. Do you guys remember this? Yeah, movie? the Alcatraz movie. Yeah, you've never seen so much camera. Like you'd be like, right. oh, it's good, it's good. Oh my God, I, all I'm doing is noticing this camera. Um, and these fuckers, you know, are giving such a good performance that I I, I made the biggest uh, mistake ever. So we had to go back and actually like settle that down and, and lock it off. But uh, it was a, a lot of fun to shoot that, that bar for sure and that whole scene. And it did kind of really 
gel between them. But uh, yeah, I, I did absolutely get lost in performance at, at, at that point. And I think Megan too, because you were you were sitting at the monitor and neither of us were like, oh shit, it's not going to cut. No, we were just great. like, oh, this looks so good and they're so great. How lucky are we? Yeah. And is that something that's a, if you make it sound like an easy decision, but clearly a lot of filmmakers fall in love with a shot and they can't divorce themselves of how it's impacting the actual film itself. Is that an easy choice for you to make when it's something that just looks great, but it's not necessarily the best thing for the overall story? I, I think Megan and I both knew when we assembled it, it, it was bugging me. And I will say, hopefully he doesn't get mad at me. I think it was Don Coscarelli, who's, who's, who's a big collaborator of ours, who, who was watching it and was like, it's beautiful. It's amazing. Your actors are amazing. Everything's great. Four minutes in, I wanted to, I wanted to kick my, my screen. You know, he was like, yeah, I can't even believe what you're doing. It's way too distracting. And I was like, Oh fuck. Then I had to go back and look at it. And I was like, he's right. And Megan was like, he's right. Um, and the, you ask about casting and shorthand and being friends. I don't think there's many actors that I could say I could have been a year later for all I know, six months or whatever it was, it was after. And I said, Hey guys, we got to get the hair. I'll try to find the outfits and we got to go back to the bar. Um, and we're able to do that. So if it was any other actors, and I, I'm not saying like, oh, I have a small, if it was literally anybody else, you would have been distracted by that scene because we would have been stuck. Um, but thank God these guys are friends and, and collaborators and understood what we had to do. Uh, and that um, that really uh, worked for us. But yeah, it's, it's that, that's filmmaking, right? And that's exactly what we're talking about when you, uh, you get lost in performance. You don't, you can't put everything on paper. You can't make shot lists. You can't, you can storyboard, you can animatic, you can do everything. Um, but at the end of the day, something on the day is going to inform, you know, a change or, or, a, or an emotion or something you want to capture. And uh, sometimes you don't get it right. Um, so, and I, again, that's part of the uh, organic experience. And I hate using the word organic, but it, it's, it's, it's so applicable to our experience. Yeah. Like, yeah, I feel like when it comes to making these type of movies, and I don't know any other way to be because this is pretty much the kind that I've made um, or worked on. Um, you go, you go the Bob Ross route, which is like where you prepare as best you can. And then on the day, there are no mistakes, just happy accidents. And, um, you know, like I remember that what I remember most from the bar is not that scene. I remember, you know, that stuff, but I also remember literally Megan and Brad and I jamming ourselves into a, um, a very bleach smelling bathroom that has two mirrors and it's, we're trying to get a shot of Russell washing his hands. But the problem with that is that the only place the camera can set up, there's two mirrors. So it's near impossible for the camera to not be in the shot. So I remember we had, I find you find yourself in this strangely contorted position where my weird fat back can cover up the camera. And how do I wash my hands and make it look natural? while also not being able to move at all. And it it's, I, I, I love the shot in the movie. Now the making it was, it was a physical, was a 30 minute nightmare. Um, but that happens all the time. And what, what ends up happening is that when you get it, it's like a high five moment. And I remember we were at some location um, where we were shooting the, the a drive up, to somebody's house and it was like an exterior and we've been tired of the way some of the the car stuff worked and i think that brad was like okay we're gonna shoot he was trying to not do a lot of 
over like over shoulders behind the car back seat because that gets that dies visually so fast and there was one that he set up that the idea was we were going to just have it there for coverage as just like a little thing um this will be one to two seconds and then you know we'll figure out another way to shoot it but we ran the whole scene and then we discovered and this happened so many times on this that like it was a really unique angle to have on it and it actually really worked so sophie and i being um like really down for going all right well let's just run the whole scene and see what happens maybe we'll be able to get something from it and and being prepared to do that <coughs> allows us some some freedoms for creativity that would never happen on on bigger productions because that just means that four of us jump in the car and go somewhere and and that's kind of where you start hoping to one day make movies but then it's such a gift when when everybody knows how to make them and you can go off and and you know like um kind of you know going back to the rodriguez thing you know like being able to be like okay well i don't have a steady cam rig but i have a skateboard and so like understanding the technical fundamentals of it allows us the freedom to to sort of break some rules in a way that makes I think everybody's trying to do one thing a lot of times when it comes to independent cinema and that's make their movie look like a, like a studio picture. And what ends up looking bland because you've got your establishing your mediums and then your close-ups, and it just kills the visual identity of the film. Um, but if you know what those rules are and you can be flexible with approach and go, okay, what do we have today? We have this, 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 Oh, we have to shoot right here because that's too cool looking. And then there's 10 problems that come with shooting it there. Well, those problems help create that sort of iconic identity for the movie once you solve them. Also, no audio on that day. And audio is super important. And our audio recorders, everybody was amazing and obviously is. But that was kind of like, if we can get the visuals here, and I think we popped a Zoom recorder in the cup holder of the car. And we were like, there'll be reference. We can do it in ADR. It's one of the few scenes that completely has no, no ADR. It, it is as really? recorded by the Zoom recorder in the cup holder. And even our mixer was like, oh, you didn't, what? I'm like, you don't need that scene? He's like, no, it's perfect. He's like, you had a sound guy. but I mean, we had nothing. And the the the, the blocking at those French overs that we did for that, I think uh, we kind of found that based on the house lighting and the practical lighting. I think I had like two Quasar Science tubes, mm-hmm. you know what I mean? Just to kind of fill in. But the actual, and you can see Sophie's profile, there's kind of this amazing kind of very warm uh, lighting. And we kind of were able to place the car um, in, in a practical situation where it worked. And AJ's point about the bathroom too is funny because that uh, it, the room was just too small and too mirrored to light. Like we had to, we were able to put one little thing in there, but when Megan and I looked at the footage and Megan, you probably remember this, I've never seen greener footage. And it wasn't like it was off color. We tried to balance it, but the practical lights and the walls in that room and the red sensor it just created green. There was just nothing. We couldn't find any temperature that was anything different. Um, so leaving there, that's one of the ones where I'm like, that was a wasted day. We're going to have to do that again. I'm going to have to explain it to AJ. It's green. But our wonderful colorist was able to actually dial it back. And then the green kind of did play into the, the grittiness of that bathroom, which leads us back out into the, 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 the final scene of the film. Um, so that stuff is all, I think AJ mentioned happy accidents. And it's just kind of taking what you have and, and making it work. But we're, I mean, I'm, I'm very happy with how that stuff turned out but I'm sure there were conversations that Megan and I had that I was like, wasted, not, you know, until we look at it the next day, I'm like, it doesn't work. That's every day. 
And then we'd look at it and be like, no, it's great. <laughs> <laughs> it takes at least one, one night of sleep to be able to look at something. I, I was really thrilled to see the film and had the chance to go back and watch it twice um, just because there was so much to dive into the second time here and rewatch things and appreciate it on a different level. But I'm really sad that I didn't get to see this with an audience the first time because this is the kind of film that I think will inspire conversations that people would walk out of the theater and just you would start talking with strangers in the lobby. And um, this is the kind of film that I know I said this before, but I think I, I want to reiterate this, that this reminds me of why I love movies, your film. And you guys have done something really special here. And I just wanted to say thank you for making the film. Thank you for doing this again. This is, I think people are going to find this film. They're going to love the shit out of it, even though if it might be difficult for you to sell it and explain it, how what, exactly what it is. Uh, once you get people to sit down with it, they're going to, this would be the thing that people when you went to the cool video store that had the recommendations on the wall, the good clerk that you trusted, this would have been his number one pick for weeks to come for her. Thank you. To hear. Thank we you. appreciate that. Thank you. Yeah. And uh, last other thing I know I didn't, I mentioned, oh, shit. <laughs> I was hoping that's what you went to the wall to get. <laughs> now, what were you saying? <laughs> um, I, I was just going to throw out there the one thing, Sophie, that line that you have um, where AJ says, do you bury a lot of bodies out at Winchester? And your reply, the nah, just this time, that is one of the reasons that, that you need to go back and rewatch this because that line fucking killed me every time. And it's great. So <laughs> well done there. Thank you. Thank you so much. <laughs> well, thank you all for doing this twice. I, I really appreciate it. And best of oh. luck. And I, I hope the, the, your day's over at this point. So thank you for being good at it, Christopher. It means the world. Thank you. Yeah. We appreciate it, man. Thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good day, All guys. Right. Thank you. See you next time. Thank you. Time enough to figure you out. Time enough to write this down. Wish me luck. Give me hope.
Always crack.